0: You are listening to Monocle's House View first broadcast on the 21st of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monaco's House View coming up today. As Canadians head to the polls, we have the very latest from our team in Canada as Justin Trudeau attempts to win a second term in office. Plus... Trump has, for a long time, produced
1: this great stream of tweets with curious spelling mistakes, factual and so on. But there
0: are degrees of this. My guests Stephen Deal and John Everard, are here to discuss Donald Trump's latest Twitter gaffe and US threats to pull out of a treaty set to keep the peace between Moscow and Washington. And we hear what Joker Widodo has planned for his second term in office as President of Indonesia.
2: Jokowi is expected to prioritize education and foreign investment during his final term, starting with some added youth in his cabinet.
0: I am Markus Hippie. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. Canadians are heading to the polls today to decide whether Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gets a second term in office. I'm joined on the line by Monaco's Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis. Thomas, what is the public mood like now? Trudeau had a pretty long honeymoon period, but he has been increasingly criticised.
3: Well, it's an interesting question, Marcus. I think, as you say, Justin Trudeau's political honeymoon was pretty remarkable. That has ebbed for some time now, and his approval ratings here in Canada have been slipping fairly consistently uh, for at least the past year, I would say. I think if you look at the tone of the campaign as it's gone on, each of the parties have tried to conduct really rather positive campaigns speaking broadly, I'd say. Uh, But I think when you hear lots of events like town halls and things that broadcasters like the CBC have conducted over the past few weeks, you do hear this sentiment from various voters in those context, saying that they feel a little bit browbeaten by the choices on offer. Now, I think that's quite interesting when you couple it with looking at what happened during early voting, which took place last week. Uh, That has broken records. More Canadians than ever before turned out to vote early uh, during several days last week. I think about 4.7 million uh, voters cast their ballots then. Um, It's difficult to say whether that will translate into record turnouts or very high turnouts as opinion polls open across the country today. But I think for an electorate that we're told that is fairly sort of in low mood over this year's vote, that actually record turnout might say that there are some surprises along the way, as the votes are counted later tonight.
0: Exactly how difficult will it be to predict this result? Well, it's incredibly difficult if you're
3: looking at the opinion polls. They have consistently shown that the three or four major parties have been pretty deadlocked throughout the campaign. Uh, The latest opinion polls over this final past weekend of campaigning uh, showed uh, no difference in that. Uh, No single party at the moment has more than a third of the vote in terms of voter intentions. Uh, Now, I think if you're looking at what is needed to um, host a uh, majority administration in Ottawa you need about 35 I think or 38 percent of the vote to do that so it really does feel as though it could go either way it is important to remember however that four years ago when Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party won a landslide victory across the country the opinion polls weren't predicting that either so as I mentioned I think there might be some surprises to come a little later today
0: Let's talk about the first-past, the post-voting system. Trudeau promised to get rid of it in the last election, but it's still in place for today's ballot. How could that affect the balance of power?
3: Well, I think, you know, that's one of the major areas that when I've spoken to voters throughout the course of the past four years, I guess, that this failure to overhaul the voting system is really something that has rankled a lot of Canadian voters. He made the promise uh, four years ago, and I think he made it not actually maybe thinking that he would win an outright majority. Overhauling any voting system is a hugely complicated task, both in terms of the politics but also in terms of the logistics of it Um, so we will have uh, still the first past the post system Um, elizabeth may at the green party she has vowed that if she wins uh, which i think if you look at the opinion polls is unlikely uh, but if she wins uh, that she would uh, implement a different voting system a proportional one which uh, lots of trudeau's opponents seem to claim uh, will be a fairer way of voting a national government. I think what the first-past-the-post system does is that if you feel as though you're on the left of the spectrum, you may then tend to vote strategically. So even if in your heart of hearts you'd like to vote for the New Democrats, which is the big party on the left of the spectrum here, or the Green Party, say, that actually you feel as though their chances might be kind of slim, so you'd go for the Liberal Party instead so i suppose that justin trudeau and his government will be hoping that there is a little bit of strategy going on uh, in during election day Today, uh, but we'll have to wait and see whether actually people feel so sort of disenfranchised by you know v- various elements of uh, Justin Trudeau's track record over the past four years, whether they do follow their hearts in some way and vote for a party that they haven't voted for before.
0: Let's let's talk about that track record a bit more. As you mentioned, Trudeau failed to overhaul the voting system. That is something he promised four years ago. Has he managed to keep his other election promises?
3: He's actually kept a remarkable number of his election promises, and many of them are mark huge shifts in, you know, policy here and into and the law here in Canada too. I suppose one of the big flagship issues is the legalization of marijuana use. That was a topic uh, of protest for activists who wanted to see the decriminalization of marijuana for for decades here in Canada. Uh, that was really sort of a landmark moment for. Them. We've seen lots of interesting proposals on various things um, and laws implemented, for example, to stave off the decline of the print media in various towns and cities across the country's too. um, He has also, the economy has done pretty well under Justin Trudeau also. The, the picture has been a little bit mixed over the past few months. But I think what's interesting is for him is that I think this shapeless idea of, of mistrust has really clouded uh, lots of those achievements for many voters, uh, given how, how, many, um, how many changes have come into place uh, since he was elected back in twenty. 20- 15. And I think, you know, that's been sort of compounded by the scandal known as the SNC-Lavalin scandal a few months ago. Of course, the blackface photographs, I think, contributed to that. So it'll be interesting to see whether Trudeau's big assertions on um, housing affordability, on creating jobs for younger voters, if he is elected to a second term, if those promises have managed to break through this sense that perhaps despite being voted on a big platform of change last time around, that many voters felt that by the end of his first term, it was kind of business as usual in terms of how politicians usually conduct themselves.
0: What kind of other election promises have you heard so far? What are the most serious challenges for Trudeau promising?
3: Well, the environment has been a huge issue across all of the major parties here. Justin Trudeau's Liberal government has been harshly criticised in many quarters for quite a controversial new pipeline project that has been a very controversial issue for some time now. That's in Western Canada. And I think we will hear more about that a little later. He was elected on a platform promising that Canada would become a world leader in terms of the economics of green technology, Uh, many of his opponents say, well, how can you uh, promise those kinds of things and also then buy a company that will build one of the most um, enormous uh, sort of gas and oil infrastructure projects going on in North America uh, when work starts on it. Um, I think uh, affordability has been a big issue, particularly for voters in the big cities. That's something that, again, all of the party leaders have faced lots of tough questions on. And I think actually very broadly an idea of trust. I think if you look at how the Conservative Party have conducted themselves, um, they are having their own sort of um, splits, if you like, in terms of whether to move to a more populist wing of the political spectrum uh, or to try and maintain the middle ground and I think that's made lots of uh, lots of voters Pretty suspicious as well. So I think, in terms of trusting one's leaders, and Justin Trudeau, I think won the trust vote pretty, pretty firmly last time around. Uh, it's whether Canadians feel that they they can trust the government that they vote in next. And I think when you look the, to the southern neighbour here in Canada, this idea of trust is uh, sharpened quite distinctly. Um, and I think there is kind of that might play that. Uh, into the election today, uh, the Canadians don't want to be, uh, don't want to have what's happening politically in the U.S. seeping into Canada, too. So I think there will be lots of themes that play when voters make their decision a little later today.
0: Monacos Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis, there. You are listening to Monacos House View. We'll be hearing from our panelists Stephen Deal and John Everard in just a moment. But first, here are some of the other stories we
4: have been following today. Thank you, Marcus. As we've been hearing, Canadian voters are deciding whether to give Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a second term in office. Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party is neck and neck with the Conservatives, led by former House Speaker Andrew Scheer. It's thought that young voters will be crucial in determining the outcome of the election. Lebanon's coalition government has approved a package of economic reforms as it desperately attempts to quell the biggest protests in the country for a number of years. The government is planning to scrap controversial tax reforms and to cut the salaries of officials in a bid to prevent a general strike. Australia's biggest newspapers have published redacted front pages in a protest against press regulations. This follows the introduction of national security laws, which journalists say impede their ability to carry out their jobs. The government has said it does back press freedom, but said, quote, no one is above the law. And finally, German media reports the country's economy minister, Peter Altmaier, is considering building a space launch center. This follows calls from German industries to invest more in space research and development. For more on this story, download today's edition of The Briefing. Those are some of the stories we're following today. Now back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Danielle.
0: This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippie. I'm joined now by our news panel for a longer look at some of the main stories we are following today, which today includes Russia analyst Stephen Diel and John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea. Welcome to the program. We look first to the United States, a country led by a man known for being fast and loose with the facts. Over the weekend, Donald Trump made a few incredible statements on. On Twitter and made a huge gaffe as well, all in a single tweet. The president was attempting to attribute a statement on American troops in Syria to his Secretary of Defense, whom Donald Trump named as Mark Esperanto, where in reality his defense chief is called Mark Esper. Stephen, is this a case of autocorrect? One assumes that possibly
5: he didn't um, read his tweet as clear, carefully as you should have done. His, his phone had put in Esperanto. One, one one assumes that, but of course you can never be sure with with Donald Trump. I mean, maybe it was some kind of weird joke of his. I, I mean, you know, he is just so far beyond the pale that um, that that's that's the, the the guess. You know, that the that, um, the autocorrect came up with Esperanto, and he just carried on writing. Um, you know, he, he's not a careful man in, in many things. So, but I mean, it's, it's deeply insulting to the man himself for a start. Um, but it just makes him look such an idiot
0: again. I guess there are many, many questions that can be raised in regards to this tweet. What is Trump's plan for leaving some troops in Syria, for example? He claims troops are coming home when indeed some are being moved to Iraq and some will stay in Syria. Well, yes, that's right. His claim that the troops are coming home is not entirely
1: true, as Mark Esper, a man who we've got or Mark Esperanto, as he come to right. know, um, has, has, has quietly pointed out, uh, perhaps with some relish, having your name sort of misspelled by your boss, probably greats rather. But I think there's a wider issue here. I mean, uh, as you said at the beginning, Marcus, uh, the, you know, Trump has for a long time produced this great stream of tweets with curious spelling mistakes, factual inaccuracies and so on. But there are degrees of this, and not just this tweet, but in general, over the last several weeks, uh, we have seen a crescendo of almost comical factual errors. And I'm seeing a lot of analysis now on uh, American blogs uh, suggesting that Trump is in some kind of meltdown, that the stresses of the impeachment process, whether or not he actually comes to anything, uh, are really telling on him. And what grasp of reality he may once have had is now slipping away.
0: Stephen, do you agree? I do
5: I think it's a very good uh, it's a very good analysis John um and things you know, he put in that same tweet something about we've secured the oil mm-hmm. and and what does that mean well no one knows <laughs> that's it and um, uh, and you know yes pulling back pulling back the troops well actually sending them to uh, Iraq is Probably putting them into a more likely a combat situation than where they are now. I uh, he's um, it it is extraordinary. We've been we've been saying for the last three years, you know, oh this is extraordinary. You know, Trump does this, Trump says that, whatever. But uh, as John says, it just it gets weirder and weirder. And actually. If we're, you know, joking apart, um, it's a, it's actually very serious. I mean, you know, this is the United States we're talking about. This is the the president, the, the man with his finger on the nuclear button. Um, it, it's um, it, it's a it's a worrying situation when um, the United States is led by someone who seems so out of control.
0: The way we follow politics has changed. It's not only Donald Trump was very active on Twitter. We hear from many many other world leaders and leading politicians about their views online. Do you think that's a positive thing? Uh, it depends how they express themselves, doesn't it? I mean, knowing what
1: world leaders think is intrinsically is a good thing. It helps us to understand better uh, how the world's being run and what's driving these people. Um, if you follow Donald Trump's Twitter stream, I'm not sure that you do get great insights into, into the great mind. You just get confused.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a fact of life i was going to say an unfortunate fact of life but that's being totally subjective on my part um but i i, I in fact I've, I've i've late i've stopped using twitter because um uh, i mean no one follows me anyway and it's and why should they um uh, and you know, there's you get some useful information you get some useful news points that come out sometimes um but yeah you know i mean i, I would never have thought of Following Trump for one thing, um, I mean Obama, yes, um, and if I go back to have a look at my Twitter, I'll see what he's been saying, um, uh, and and one or two other politicians. But um, uh, it, it's it, it is a fact in modern life, you know, that social media, and particularly Twitter, and and one or two others. I mean, there's a, there's a very interesting point from uh, Instagram, in fact, um, where um, if I can use a Russian example. Um, where there was an Instagram picture sent by the Russian Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev, um, which... Alexei Navalny, the uh, unofficial leader of the opposition, used to show that, um, that that Medvedev had a yacht because he was in he was in a position where only uh, only he could have. Been. There was a yacht there, even inside a, a closed zone in St. Petersburg, and it, and it was a photo take, clearly taken from that yacht. So in fact, they can actually pull the rug out from under themselves at times, um, not not just by tweeting rubbish like Twitter like Trump does, but by showing something which actually proves them to have um, you know that, that, to in this case bought a yacht that cost millions. Of dollars um, when um, you shouldn't be able to do that on the Russian Prime Minister's salary. Exactly. Well,
0: let's finally turn our attention to international security and to treaty for which the peace we enjoy can perhaps in part be attributed. The Open Skies Agreement dates back to 1992 and it includes 34 countries, including Russia and the United States. In part, this deal allows countries to fly unarmed surveillance aircraft over one another's territory to monitor things like military activity. Activity. Stephen, if I come to you first, it's been said that even when relations between Moscow and Washington are tense, this treaty allows a level of transparency and trust. Would you agree with that statement?
5: potentially yes as long as they stick to the rules um and if we go back even further i mean indeed, 30 years before it was um it was it was uh, brought into being you know 1962 we have the cuban missile crisis um where you have no 1960 wasn't it cuban, no sorry not the cuban missile Crisis. i mean i'm talking about the u2 instead of 1960 where an american spy plane flying over the uh, over uh, the soviet union was shot down um now, it avoids that sort of thing happening um, if if they announce in time to, to do with the rules saying 24 hours notice, you know, we're going to fly over your country. It'll be an unarmed plane. You can check the plane. The, the, all the, the provisions are there. But, for example, the Russians have not exactly played ball because um, they have restricted flights over Kaliningrad, which is that what was Königsberg Kon- in, in Germany uh, that little piece of Russia that's outside separated from the main Russian, um, Russian country um, and so and that they're not supposed to do so there are certain complaints from the American side but um, the balance of arguments and, and there are some who are very strongly arguing one way or the other in America but the balance of the argument is no for goodness sake don't pull out of uh, mm-hmm. the IS treaty Mr., uh, President Trump because it does actually give us greater benefits um, American planes can fly over Russia for example and feed back information to either NATO allies or Ukraine. Um, Ukraine doesn't have satellites that can pick up Russian troop movements, and the Americans can do that with their planes. And 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 so it, it it's um, it's not perfect, but it's better than uh, than not having it. I
0: would and say. and indeed, as you as you mentioned, there are now reports that some Trump administration officials are keen for the for the U.S. to exit that treaty. How much sense would that make? It'll make no sense
1: at all. I mean, I agree entirely with what Steve has just said. Uh, the treaty is imperfect. Most treaties are. I mean, diplomacy is, is, a, is a mucky art. Uh, you you, you tre- Implementation tends to fray slightly around the edges. Nevertheless, Open Skies is a very valuable treaty and has reinforced confidence uh, between two potential adversaries over a long period. Its key weaknesses are that, firstly, it was invented before the drone age uh, so that it refers to aircraft You can probably stretch a bit to drones, but it would be good in a perfect world to have it recast so that drones are explicitly included. The other thing, of course, it doesn't include China. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the same criticism as levelled at the INF. But these are criticisms suggesting not that there's anything wrong with it, but there's not quite enough of it. We want more rather than less. And withdrawing makes no sense, whatever.
0: And is it also hard to try to prove the value of this kind of a treaty? We don't really know where we would be without it.
5: We, we don't. But um, I mean, the, the fact, you know, the fact it took so long to come into being and it was, you know, it was, it was signed in 92. The first flights weren't until 2002. It took 10 years. So, you know, it, it's, you know, yes, the average man in the street may not even be aware of it. And so he doesn't know what, what uh, the information that it gains. Um, but it's... It, the fact that it's there, I, I very like much like John's point about including drones now because they are now so important in um, uh, for not only for reconnaissance but even for I mean as weapons systems, but for reconnaissance, yeah, they, they should be included, but it' probably take another ten years to get them written into the treaty.
0: What does the future look like for this treaty then in the case the U.S. decides to stay? Do you think there's a chance that China might be keen to join one day as well?
1: I think that would take a lot of hard persuasion. I mean, China is deeply uh, dubious about signing new treaties about any kind of international entanglement. Uh, and. I think that uh, there would be a lot of heavy lifting in getting China to sign. If, however, that could be achieved, that really would be a major advance in world security.
5: Indeed, I agree. I mean, and, and I think that if a U.S. pullout would only be welcomed by Moscow, I, I don't think any of any American allies would welcome it. Um, uh, the, the the Russians would love it because if they've still got it in place, I mean, they would stay. They still have the right to fly over America,
0: whereas America won't have the, the right to fly over the Russia. Stephen Diel and John Everard, thank you very much. In a moment, we ask what's next for Indonesia. You are listening to Monaco's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. To Indonesia now, where the nation's president is now officially back for a second term. And so we ask, what will Widodo do next?
2: Indonesian President Joko Jokowi Widodo will be looking for a fresh start after the inauguration of his second term in Jakarta yesterday. Street violence in recent weeks has taken some of the shine off of the former Carpenters' re-election in May. Student demonstrators, prompted by the introduction of several controversial laws rushed through by the outgoing parliament, clashed with police in bloody scenes repeated across the world's largest Muslim country. Jokowi is expected to prioritise education and foreign investment during his final term, starting with some added youth in his cabinet, reported to include the founder of the Indonesian Uber-style unicorn Gojek. But kick-starting Indonesia's faltering economy faces plenty of diversions. Chief among them is unrest in Papua and a parliament intent on ending direct presidential elections to stop another political outsider rising to the top in 2024.
0: And that's all for today's show. Monaco's House View was produced by Danielle Bage. Our studio managers were Steph Chungo and David Stevens. Coming up at twenty hundred London time, a brand new edition of Monaco on Culture with host Robert Bound. Monaco's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 in London, 1300 in Toronto. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and bye for now.